You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for February 2023. If you haven't already done so, I hope you checked out last month's episode where I had a fun and, I gotta say, inspiring conversation with cardiovascular surgeon Joanna Chikwe about drawing and music and working our creative muscles alongside the careers that fuel us in parallel and complementary ways. This month we are back to our regular format. That means letting you eavesdrop on some of the interviews the TCTMD reporters did to pull together their stories over the last several weeks. In February, Yael Maxwell was still wrapping up some of her CV surgery coverage from the STS meeting and later headed back out to the CRT meeting in Washington, D.C. Todd Neal delved into the big stroke news from the AHA's International Stroke Congress early in the month, and the rest of us kept ourselves pretty busy with a lot of other interesting stories. Let's dive in. What better place to kick off Heart Month than with a feature story looking at the long-running Go Red for Women campaign, launched nearly two decades ago by the AHA to help raise awareness among women that heart disease is still their number one killer. TCTMD's Caitlin Cox sunk her teeth into this one, and as she writes, most cardiologists could identify some go-red swag, starting with that iconic red dress. Many may even wear the red dress pin on the lapels of their white coats. But more than merch, as Caitlin's feature story explores, the campaign has made its mark in different ways. For one, it's raised a lot of money, $16 million in 2022 alone. And while lots of funds go towards public campaigns and health fairs, some sizable sums have gone towards research. $20 million, for example, between 2016 and 2022, invested in strategically focused research directly targeting unanswered questions in women's cardiovascular health. But as Caitlin learned in speaking to a range of trailblazers in this space, among them Nanette Wenger, Renee Bullock-Palmer, and AHA President Michelle Albert, the Go Red initiative has done much more, often at a grassroots level. All agreed, however, that there's still much more work to do. Find Caitlin's feature story on our homepage to learn more, but for now I want to play you part of her interview with AHA past president Bob Harrington one of the people wearing a red dress pin in his lapel. What has long stood out to me is that so much of the research in women's cardiovascular disease and the advocacy to raise awareness is being done by female leaders. But since the cardiology workforce to this day is overwhelmingly dominated by men, most women will see male cardiologists. And that means more men really do need to be paying attention and speaking out. Here is Harrington to remind you why. You know, there's the personal aspects of it all, right? We all have had or will have women in our lives who are affected potentially with cardiovascular disease. I mean, as as you've learned, it's the leading cause of death and disability for both men and women. And so we're all going to have those episodes in our lives. And I think it's one of the reasons that uh, that the campaign has been so enduring, that it does hit people personally. And they make donations, you know, from a personal perspective that I think is uh, something we shouldn't forget. This is, it's not just stats, right? It's everybody has their personal story. 
TCTMD's Michael O'Reardon also worked on a longer-form story this month, this one looking at the impact of a 2020 revision by the CMS to the national coverage determination governing left ventricular assist devices. As part of that change, patients with advanced heart failure being considered for an LVAD no longer have to be reviewed by physicians at a Medicare-approved heart transplant center. Moreover, the NCD no longer requires patients to be placed on the active transplant waiting list maintained by the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network. Now, those steps were intended to allow for more equitable care, since patients in different regions in the U.S. might not be able to easily access a transplant center. But as Mike found out, the revisions seem to be having the unintended consequence of putting heart transplantation, the gold standard, out of reach for many patients. Those fears are supported by an analysis by Thomas Cassian and colleagues at the University of Michigan, published late last year in JAMA Network Open. Turning to the STS Intermax registry, the authors confirmed that patients treated at a hospital with both LVAD implanting and heart transplantation capabilities were more likely to get a subsequent heart transplantation. On the other hand, for those treated at LVAD-only hospitals, subsequent heart transplantation was much less likely. For his story, Mike spoke with Mary Walsh of Ascension St. Vincent Heart Center in Indianapolis, who has been worried about inequitable access to heart transplantation for some time. Search LVAD on TCTMD and you'll find Mike's story. In the meantime, here's a few parts of his interview with Walsh. What is very, very important is that patients being seen at a VAD-only center be given information about cardiac transplantation and be evaluated for transplant at a transplant center. Because with the change in UNOS policy in 2018, patients with durable LVADs are to some extent disadvantaged in the listing criteria. And most transplant centers are now using a strategy of non-durable LVADs to support patients to transplant. If a patient goes to a LVAD-only center, an LVAD-only center may say, oh, we know this patient isn't a transplant candidate, but I would argue that that's not true. Right. Because if you're not doing evaluation for, of patients every day for transplant, the nuances of what makes a patient a candidate or not may elude you. Right. So in the past, the, a transplant center had to be partnered with an LVAD-only center to make sure that didn't happen. We have not had a reporter on site at the STS meeting since 2020, so I was pretty excited to have Yael Maxwell get back on a plane to attend this cardiothoracic surgery meeting in person. Judging by Yael's coverage, past and present, when a bunch of surgeons get together, they always have pretty strong opinions that make for interesting reading. Yael's coverage included stories urging surgeons to learn certain percutaneous techniques in order to keep up with the pace of change, as well as more concerns about recommendations for multivessel coronary disease and those 2021 revascularization guidelines that you've heard about on this podcast before. The study I'll tell you about today is an analysis presented by Joseph Sabic of the University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center, comparing patients in the STS Adult Cardiac Surgery Database to those enrolled in the long-running NIH-sponsored ischemia trial. The point of doing so? 
Sabic's beef lies with the decision by the revascularization guideline writers to downgrade cabbage in stable ischemic heart disease to a 2B recommendation based on the ischemia trial. Sabic argued if you look at patients undergoing cabbage for stable CAD in the SDS database, it's clear this is a much, much more complex patient population. According to Sabic, ischemia was, quote, over-interpreted and over-applied to downgrade cabbage in the guidelines. Please do head to the conference tab on TCTMD to find all of Yale's stories from STS and this one in particular. After interviewing Sabic, Yael spoke with ischemia PI David Marin of Stanford University, who had this to say. First, I'd like to make the point that the guideline writing committee was not under the influence of the ischemia trial investigators. They're an independent group of experts. And I don't think that they made that decision from what I gather. They, they didn't make that decision because of the ischemia trial. But I do think that the publication of our results led the committee to reevaluate the totality of evidence. And when you look at meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials uh, with or without ischemia, there is not a mortality benefit from cabbage in stable patients with a normal ejection fraction. So while I don't disagree with the conclusion that the guideline writing committee had, from what I can tell, I don't think it was because of the ischemia trial, but I do think the ischemia trial prompted a review. And I agree with the data that he presented with one major exception. He compares the cabbage patient characteristics in the STS database with the overall ischemia patient characteristics. And the appropriate comparison is with ischemia patients who underwent cabbage. And I realize that he doesn't have those data and we will be publishing those data, but we did not include patients who commonly undergo cabbage. No argument there. Sticking with surgery for a while longer here, TCTMD's Todd Neal covered a study published in Jack looking at whether centers that start doing transcatheter edge-to-edge repair for mitral regurgitation end up cannibalizing their surgical volumes. The quick answer? Nope. Angela Lowenstern of Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville and Andrew Vexstein of Duke University led this analysis. As they point out, prior studies looking at the impact of TAVI's introduction surprised some observers by leading to an uptick, not a dip, in surgical volumes for aortic stenosis. This time around, investigators looked at the STS-ACC-TVT registry to see what effects edge-to-edge mitral valve repair procedures were having on surgeons. Again, to the surprise of some, the overall median annualized surgical repair volume by institution between July 2011 and December 2018 remained unchanged. There was a fall in surgical procedures for intermediate and high-risk patients, but an increase in low-risk patient procedures. 
Here is Vextine, a cardiothoracic surgeon, explaining to Todd why he thinks surgeons should not be fearful of this evolving technology, but on the contrary, get on board. I'm a surgeon. Just the two first authors are a structuralist and, and then a surgeon myself. So it just shows that we can work synergistically. It's good to have all of these options for your patients. And the institutions that have the best outcomes are some of the institutions that have the best relationship between surgeons and cardiologists. If you can be evaluated for all of these things, if you can direct the correct patients, not just based on their risk, but based on all the factors that go into uh, the best repair for a patient, you can direct them towards the best option. It's the best thing for the for surgeons and for the cardiologists and for the patients. I completely agree. And it, it just shows that these co- these technologies don't need to necessarily be at odds with one another. And just like in the aortic valve space, having more patients be referred to be evaluated um, helps everyone. It helps the patients too. I myself had time to dig into an idea for a story that has been with me for some time. After feeling like I'd seen an upswing in the number of physicians on Twitter mentioning that they'd been verbally or physically assaulted, particularly during the COVID-19 lockdowns, but not limited to that period. I wanted to know, were attacks on healthcare providers rising, and were these reaching cardiologists? If so, what are the reasons and what can be done to keep safe? My story, entitled As Violent Attacks on Healthcare Workers Rise, Cardiology Takes Note, can, um, alas, be found by searching the word violent on TCTMD. For a taste of what you're in for, here is part of my conversation with Pamela Douglas of Duke University. She pointed out that women, especially nurses and allied health professionals, and particularly minorities, have weathered aggression from patients for years. But she does believe there's a shift away from the mantra that the patient is always right. I asked her if she herself had experienced an uptick in violence. Here's how she replied. I haven't experienced it myself. I do see signs up now that are also saying we expect everybody to behave, <laughs> behave properly and, and um, be courteous. <laughs> And it's not just to the staff, it's to everybody. So, I mean, I have to assume that there is a the reason that there's a response like that is that there is more of it. And, you know, it would be logical to assume if people are rude and violent on airplanes and in traffic, <laughs> where people, people misbehave, that they're going to do it in, in healthcare settings, which are very stressful environments. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of bad news, a lot of loss of control. It's an ideal setting for somebody to last out because they just don't feel like they can handle the situation or, you know, have agency situations. I'm going to finish off with a story that takes us full circle back to the underdiagnosis and underrecognition of heart disease in women. This month, TCTMD's Laura McEwen covered an analysis of over 2 million women in Sweden, published in the British Medical Journal. While prior work has looked at the effect of individual adverse pregnancy outcomes on later CV risk, investigators led by Casey Crump of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York looked at five major types. Preterm delivery, small for gestational age, preeclampsia, other hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, and gestational diabetes, and then looked at how these might be linked with later cardiovascular disease. 
The study is observational, so of course subject to all the flaws that entails, but what it points to is a higher risk of ischemic heart disease among women who had a major pregnancy complication, with that risk typically emerging decades later. Laura reached out to Michael Honigberg of Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston to find out what he makes of the connection. Others have speculated that there might be a causal effect of the adverse pregnancy outcome itself on future risk of cardiovascular disease. And it's possible that there's a bidirectional relationship, um, although it's hard to imagine how a pregnancy outcome could continue to impart enduring risk. 46 years later, that seems a little bit hard to explain biologically. So I think what this is showing us is that uh, women who experience these adverse pregnancy outcomes, for at least some of these adverse pregnancy outcomes, really have sort of inherent, either genetic or other environmental risk factors that aren't fully captured in our other conventional cardiovascular disease risk factors. That is it for Heart Sounds for February 2023. I hope I've piqued your interest in going back to read some of these stories in full. March is going to be a very busy one in cardiology, as you well know. We will have a team of reporters on the ground at the upcoming ACC World Heart Federation Congress in New Orleans. I hope to see some of you there. Later in the month, we'll also bring you coverage of the second annual Technology and Heart Failure Therapeutics meeting, which is hosted by the Cardiovascular Research Foundation, which is also my employer and publisher of TCTMD. I hope you'll check back to see what news we pick up from that meeting. Thank you for tuning into Heart Sounds, and I'll see you back here next month. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD, featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. 